you are going to have to have fast ears this morning. I pray that you brought them with you. We have a lot of terrain to cover and very little time to do it in. So Mark 6 will be our text. Sarah and I decided that we are so opposed to allergy season in Greenville that we are going to jump on a plane on Tuesday and head to Turkey for about 10 days just to escape the snotty noses and coughing and congestion. I'm just kidding. That's not exactly why we're going. Uh, But we are uh, heading to Istanbul um, on Tuesday. While you guys slumber, we will be on a jet plane uh, flying uh, over the pond to serve for the next 10 days with some of our friends there working in various cities throughout the country of Turkey. We invite your prayers Uh, As we go, you can imagine it's been intimidating leaving our three kiddos behind and uh, jumping on a jet plane to to go and do that. But I don't want to ask you to do anything that I'm not doing myself. And so as I'm encouraging us to live on mission and engage in short-term projects, I think it's important that you see one of your pastors uh, doing that and all of our pastors doing that and staff doing that consistently. So please join us uh, in prayer as Sarah and I seek to Uh, serve there. The beauty of your church is you will be well cared for while we're away. We have able uh, and capable staff that will love and lead faithfully. We'll try to keep you up to date uh, on technology on the table and various places with how the trip is going and uh, trust that you will pray for us. Let's jump jump into the text this morning. Mark chapter 6. We have a fun passage loaded with nuggets of truth for us. If you're new with us, we are a third of the way or so through the Gospel of Mark, studying about the kingdom of God coming in the person of Christ. And uh, we'll begin uh, our text this morning. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So just to orient us into the text, we remember of the last two chapters of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has been out proclaiming the kingdom, demonstrating it in his person and work, kind of crisscrossing the sea, doing various miracles. The people are astonished at the work that Christ is doing. And now we are told that he and his disciples, who he has invited to follow with him, return back to his hometown in a typical fashion of Jesus and the apostles that would follow. They begin in the synagogue. And here, what we see in Christ, and notice from Mark's recounting of the story, is really no summary of what Jesus taught. We would assume that he's teaching the very same things that he's been teaching up to this point. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This seems to be the one sermon that Jesus is harping on since Mark 1, 14 and 15. But rather, the focus of Mark and our passage Uh, up until verse 13 today, is the response of the people. Notice, Mark zeroes in our attention on their response, and what he focuses on is their amazement, their astonishment at what he says. 
This has been true and will be true throughout the book, that when people come in contact with the teaching of Christ, their response is one of astonishment. Consider Mark 1. Many of these scriptures will be on the screen behind me. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So when Jesus teaches, particularly in the synagogue, there's something different about his teaching that captivates the attention of those. Particularly here, we see this um, statement of authority that's invested in Christ that's different from these other religious leaders that seem to be pointing to someone outside of themselves, but rather Jesus points to himself. The kingdom is fulfilled in me. He has authority that's different from all others. But this astonishment is not necessarily positive. And in fact, it will increasingly descend throughout Mark's gospel. In Mark eleven eighteen, for example, the chief priest and the scribes heard this, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the astonishment of the crowds focuses laser-like attention on Jesus that ultimately is going to get him killed. And we're not told here in our text this morning if the astonishment that the people expressed was positive or negative at the outset, but rather we see this string of five questions. Notice in verse 2, verse 3, and into verse 4, this string of five questions that the people ask that begin to reveal their heart. They start with, where does this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? These would be the natural questions you would ask if you had seen someone calm the sea, right? Cast out, you've heard before TV anchormen are reporting that this guy's been doing some wild and crazy things out there. Where does this come from? The questions take a clearly negative tone by the time we get to verse 3. Consider, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is one of the few places in the scriptures where we're given some glimpse into Jesus' family, his brothers and sisters, perhaps the actual biological children of Mary and Joseph. And the people here in the next two questions point to his occupation and his family, and begin to ask questions that clearly demonstrate they're not all that impressed. Is this not the carpenter? This could re refer to a woodworker or to a stonemason. We're not exactly sure exactly what Christ's vocation was, but that he did some type of work with his hands. They point to this lowly, common occupation. He's just the carpenter, the woodworker, the stonemason, and to his family. And interestingly, in our, the, just something strange, they point to him being the son of Mary, an unusual mention for people to refer to the mother here. Typically, you would point to the father, even if the father was deceased in a home that was highly integrated with the family. This would be the son of Joseph, but here the text leads us to 
see the son of Mary. Perhaps there's a hint of illegitimacy to this claim. That's just that crazy woman's kid. Remember the one that told us the story about being pregnant with a child and she'd never known a man? Just that one. In a family-integrated culture, much more uh, highly connected than ours, they point to these brothers and sisters and his family and say, oh, we, we know him. He's just the carpenter. He's just Mary's boy. He's just the brother of these. These are just his sisters. Interestingly enough, up until this point in the text, in his baptism and temptation scene, the voice of God clearly affirms the person of Jesus as the Son of God, and even the demons say, that's God's Son. But here, his family and his hometown seem to be unimpressed. They only see him as the son of Mary, one of among series of brothers and unnamed sisters. Perhaps, even as we get a running start into our text, you recognize this voice of familiarity with Jesus in your own heart. Perhaps you see this, oh, it's just Jesus, bubbling up often in your own soul. My guess is that for many of us, we have been exposed to the gospel claims to the deity of Christ for many years. And there is a stark danger in our own hearts that is the same danger that we find here in the text, that we would grow familiar with that which is very common to us. You see it all around you in life, right? Consider uh, you move to a new city or get a new job, and you take a new route to your office in the morning, and there's something about that morning commute that captures your heart and your attention. You see new trees and the sunrise coming up in a fresh and new way, and there's something about that morning that captures your heart and propels you to worship. But let you take that same drive for, say, six weeks, and it begins to feel a lot like Woodruff Road, doesn't it? It's like, get me out of here. What is that person doing in front of me? Those things that we do very often can easily become quite common. We see this uh, in having children, where uh, we've had three. First child was born when we had Corey. We were the prototypical obsessive parents, right? Posting every question, getting advice and feedback, every whimper that that darling child had. Mommy and Daddy were rushing to her side. But by the time Hudson was born, poor boy, right? I mean, he's got to be screaming for us to rush to his side. Oh, he'll be all right. He's just got a sniffle. No need to take him to the doctor. You see what happens over time with things that are quite familiar to us. In the religious South, this, what I'll label this morning, mere Jesus syndrome. This familiarity with Jesus is all too common. That we would be quick to treat what is holy as common. What is meant to be frightening would become familiar. Or what is holy other would become quite ordinary. 
This is the danger that we face this morning. You would think from our text, from the work that Christ has done, that he would clearly inspire all, surely from the hometown crowd. Here's the local product made success, right? Everybody else recognizes him as God, but rather our text ends at the end of verse 3 that they took offense at him. Literally, in the Greek, this word, they were scandalized by him. We know this idea quite well in our culture, right? The latest political scandal, money laundering scheme, whatever the story is that hits the headline news, captures your attention in an all-too-negative way, and we're told that this is the response that the hometown crowd had to Jesus. They were scandalized by him. And Jesus says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. Here Jesus by nature of the mention in all three of the Gospels, probably quotes a familiar proverb. A prophet's going to get honor everywhere else, but not in his hometown. They'd heard what he had done in other places, and Jesus says, yeah, you've heard what I've done, but back home, I'm just the local handyman. If you've ever um, left your hometown and gone back to it, you recognize the tension that this is. Um, I grew up in Rock Hill, uh, South Carolina, and uh, going back home to preach a sermon is radically different than preaching in Greenville, right? It's like, they all know me, they know my story. I've preached in front of my drinking buddy, my high school best friend, right? Knowing that he said, I did his wedding, and I'm standing up and proclaiming the truth of the gospel and thinking, but that dude right there knows me, right? He knows my junk, you think a uh, pastor gets uncomfortable? Let my parents show up on Sunday here at TCC. It's just awkward and clammy. They'll listen to this on podcast. Hey, mom and dad. Um, it's like, this is weird because they're staring back at me and they've seen me all my life. They know what's going on. There's a vulnerability of preaching in front of people that know you. And here we see Jesus, though he had no sin, though he had no backstory, when he is declaring the gospel, he is shunned among his own people. Much like a prophet, he's disliked and kicked out. Even his very family, at this point, is hard soil. They're unresponsive to his claims of deity. Mark three twenty one, when he went home, the crowd gathered so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay? Jesus' family thinks that he's crazy. Now, we're not given clear indication of what happened to all of Jesus' family. We know that some were converted, that they did trust the gospel. James, for example, becomes really the figurehead leader of the church at Jerusalem. While Paul and Peter are out scattered on their mission, he anchors the church at Jerusalem, one of the first people that Christ appears to post-resurrection. So we know some, over time, place their faith and become responsive to the gospel, but at least at this point, they're not fertile soil. 
this mere Jesus syndrome, is most common among those who are closest to Christ. Consider your own life situation. For most of you in this room, a clear declaration of the gospel is not going to strike you as unique at all. And I would ask you to consider when the last time was that your emotions were stirred with an awe at the holiness of God. Would it be said of you this morning that you have become all too familiar with Jesus? Do you tend to make dismissive claims about a beautiful and magnificent gospel and find that the soil of your heart is growing hard, that there are calluses in places that were once soft to the gospel? Perhaps you can remember a time, for many of us, it's right after our conversion experience, where it seemed like we had an insatiable hunger for the word. I remember cassette tapes of Tommy Nelson from Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas, teaching just expositorily through the scriptures. And as a new believer, I didn't even have a tape deck. I know this is sad. I didn't have a tape deck in my room. And so while a student at Furman, I would sit in the parking lot across from the soccer stadium and listen to Tommy Nelson teach in my little Ford Ranger pickup. And I'd take notes and take notes and take notes because I couldn't get enough. And when I would sin... There was this almost childlike brokenness with my son. Like I, I, could, I just couldn't live with it. It just felt weird. And I had to confess. I had to talk to someone. I loved talking about the Scripture. And the danger is that over time, some of that childlike innocence, some of that soft heart would, would harden. And this morning, thankfully, we have the testimony, some from you and some from leaders in the church, of times where God does what we just sang prior to the sermon, where he takes hard hearts, calloused with familiarity, and softens them once again. Consider the claims of John Wesley. Many of you are familiar with that name at least sitting and reading the preface to Luther's beautiful commentary on the book of Romans at Aldersgate Street in London, May 24th, 1738. Sitting, reading these words, he reading the introduction to the commentary on the book of Romans, he pens these words. About a quarter past nine, while he was describing the change that God worked in my heart, through faith in Christ, this is Luther, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt I did trust Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and he had saved me from the law of sin and death. This moment, this reading of Luther's commentary to Romans would serve as a foundation for Wesley's pastoral ministry and preaching from that point forward when he points back and says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Blaise Pascal, this is a unique one because it comes from a scientist and mathematician. You may be uh, prone to think, well, that just happens to emotional type people. They cry a lot, all right? 
kind of the religious folk that they find themselves weepy a ton, that they kind of feel their heart strangely warm. I don't even know what that feels like. Here, a scientist and mathematician writes words that were so dear to him that he sewed them on the inside of his suit jacket, and they were only found after his death. In 1634, he writes, from about half past ten to about half past midnight, fire! Exclamation mark. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Security, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, greatness of the human soul. Joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. These are the words of men and women whose hearts are awakened from their stupor. Perhaps for you this morning, like for me, it's been a while since you've had that experience. Perhaps you find yourself dismissive of claims of Jesus. Oh, that's just the God who died on the cross to save humans from their sin. What do you do? He invites you this morning to some simple truths. Number one, that you would pray for your heart. Pray for your heart. If this is not a consistent and regular process of your walk with Jesus, begin it this day. That you would beg God to incite an awe of him in your heart. That you would ask that he would please, by his grace, meet you and cause you to worship him and then stay in that place. Stay there. A.W. Tozer, in his masterful book, The Pursuit of God, writes these words, and this is also true of us. We have been snared in the coils of the spurious logic which insist that if we have found him, we need to seek him no more. In the midst of this great chill, there are some who will not be content with the shallow logic. They want to taste, to touch with their hearts the wonder that is God. They want to deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God and ask God that your hearts would begin to thaw in the warmth of the love of God. Did you get Tozer's point? That many are convinced that once we are found God, or maybe better said, been found by God, then no reason to keep seeking him. It's over, and he says, no, you as a believer should consistently hunger for God. That you would beg God that he would thaw your hearts under the warmth of his love. So pray for your heart. Number two, confess the state of your heart. Confess the state of your heart. This is why small group ministry is so beautiful. One of the things that many of you need to do this week is in the context of men and women that love you and that care for you, confess to someone else, my heart is cold to Jesus right now. 
My heart is cold to his mission. I don't want to pray. I don't want to share my faith. Perhaps you've kept that bottled up for years, and you need to say, I've become quite familiar with Jesus. And then, number three, do the things that stir your heart. So pray for your heart, confess the state of your heart, and then do things that stir your heart. For example, if you're a world traveler and you find yourself kind of turning up your nose to the beauty of God's creation, the remedy for that is not go read another book on the Grand Canyon. That doesn't stir your heart. What is it? Go stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Look and see the marvelous splendor of God's handiwork. Something about that stirs our hearts in a way that simple reading and regurgitation of facts cannot do. Church, we and I need to be routinely dissatisfied with the state of our current spiritual experience. We need to have hearts that are consistently broken by how stale they quickly become. And to ask God, Paul invites the church in 2 Thessalonians, that may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This has been my desire in this morning's message, that our hearts would be directed to the love of God. But notice in verse 5, this is not simply a personal journey. This is not something simply that we can say, well, yeah, but so what? My heart's kind of cold. So what? I'm stale to the awe of God. Perhaps he'll send it when he desires. Notice verse 5. This is a weird text. He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid a hands on a few sick people, and he healed them. Now, clearly, this is one of these passages that we interpret from other clear places in the Scriptures. This is not teaching us that somehow we limit the power of God. Clearly, God is all-powerful. He can do what he pleases, work with or without us. Nor is this text a text on his salvation of people. We're not here talking about the conversion of dead sinners, the regeneration of their hearts, their new life in Christ, but rather there's something about the callousness of the hometown crowd that limits, hinders the effectiveness, the fruitfulness of God's work of bringing the kingdom to bear on this earth as it is in heaven. That their faithlessness somehow hinders God's ability to demonstrate fully what he has come to this earth to do. It's not saying that he can't save people, he clearly can, but it's saying that his ability to demonstrate powerfully 
the redemptive work of the kingdom is somehow limited by their lack of faith. Other than this, and I love this kind of parenthetical statement, except he laid a hand on a few sick people and healed them, right? Kind of showed off on the side a bit. But in contrast to Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood, that there is something about human faithlessness that hinders what God is wanting to do in a place. There are, I would suggest, untold countless ways that your and my apathetic heart might hinder the work that God wants to do in Greenville. If God wants to save your co-workers, your neighbors, he is going to do that. But a cold and calloused church can be complicit in hindering the full display of the glory of God. That we would squelch it, that we would minimize it, or that God would simply, what we see him do in the scriptures, that he would take his work elsewhere which seems to be what we see him doing in our day related to North America. God is mightily at work. He is most mightily at work around the world in places that are not North America. And I wonder if that is not a direct reflection of the callousness of the heart of the church in North America. And before we are too quick to throw stones at religious tradition or other people's churches, let me encourage you to turn the mirror to your own heart and say, how is my lack of faith, how is my cold heart somehow a part of hindering the full display of what God wants to do in this place? And then verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. That is a stunning statement, isn't it? Verse 6. Like, what makes Jesus marvel? I mean, just think about it in any area of life. Are you going to paint a picture that the creator of the universe is going to look at and say, that's awesome. I can't believe you drew something like that. That's amazing. He's the creator, right? Not going to captivate his attention by your drawings. Think he stands back and says, that guy, he read his Bible today. Awesome. Unbelievable. He's not captivated by our religious performance. What ca- There's two places that this is mentioned. Here and the faith of the centurion and God healing his servant. says that Jesus marveled at his faith seems if you want to capture the attention of God, faith is the thing that does it. If you want Jesus to marvel, faith is the thing that gets God's attention. He is amazed at great faith in the centurion, and here, at no faith. He's stunned by it. Do you have God's attention this morning? 
Which of those is captivating God as he directs his gaze at you? Unbelief or stunning faith? One more thing that seems to be instrumental in the text, spurring our hearts out of callous living, is what Jesus does next in verse 7. He calls the twelve, this small subset with among the disciples, and he begins to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from it. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So sandwiched between the callousness of the heart of the people and God's continuing work of his mission is this sending of a people. If you want one thing that will consistently awaken your all of God, it is to be sent by him to do a great work. He sends these out, these disciples, reminiscent, eerily reminiscent of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, a newly constituted people that he is now sending out on mission to the nations. He sends out the 12, and he gives them great authority. He's already told them this is what he was going to do in Mark 3, 14 through 15. He appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. How would you like that as your work assignment? Preach and cast out demons. They're sent to replicate Jesus' work through his teaching and his healing ministry, and he gives them authority. This should bubble in your mind, kind of a flash uh, check engine light on your dashboard. That sounds very similar to what he does in his Great Commission, right? All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore go. He gives them authority. Notice, he doesn't ask God to give them authority, but he gives them authority. As God, he gives the authority that is his clearly not lacking of any power, and he sends them out two by two. This would be the common theme throughout the book of Acts. Many reasons for this. Uh, In the Old Testament, you needed two people to confirm any account, so they're given testimony, witnessing to the person and work of Christ. Two people confirm that account. Clearly also encouragement, protection, assistance in preaching. And he tells them to do a weird thing, like verse 10 almost seems commonsensical, right? Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate that, all right? And if the place will not receive you, they don't listen to you. When you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony to them, against them. Can you imagine what that looks like? Like, how do you do that? How do you shake the dust off of your feet? Clearly, in a culture where you're walking to these places, the cleanliness of your feet would be a significant issue. This is why Jesus' work in John 13 to wash the disciples' feet is so important in a culture such as this. He says, I want you to go, and if they don't receive you, they don't provide this hospitality for you, they don't cleanse your feet, then you are to shake the dust off your feet, and the testimony is against them. There's a parabolic nature of this act. 
indicating that judgment is to come. Notice this text from Matthew 10 that helps inform our understanding of our passage this morning. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than your own town. And if anyone will not listen, receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that, ta- that house or that town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who I am sent. So in their sending, they're given the authority of Christ to go and extend his mission. And he says, the way that people respond to you is the way that they respond to me. So if they do not show you hospitality, if they don't receive you, if they are not responsive to your gospel claims, then shake the dust off your feet. A picture clearly here from our text of the destruction that came to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is going to be like what happened there. I destroyed it. I judged it because of its sin. This is what will happen to these places that do not receive you. Matthew 11 does the same thing. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That's a big claim, right? You reject these that God has sent, that Jesus has sent, and it will be more bearable for this incestuous, sexually promiscuous people of Sodom where very few righteous people could be found. It will be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than it will be for you. And this also is an encouragement to these that are going. They are to make haste on to the next place, not consumed with what is happening in this place that they have entered, but rather more consumed with the mission that God has entrusted to them. If they don't respond, then move on. Shake the dust off your feet and keep going. Trust that God is sovereign. He is on mission. He has entrusted you with a mission, and so don't grow consumed. This seems to be the very thing in Luke 4. I would point your attention there throughout your study of God's Word this week. In verses 20 through 30, a similar scene, in fact, perhaps the same scene of the Sabbath, uh, or Jesus' instructions in the synagogue is told there. And there, basically, in the text, What incites the fury of the people is Jesus points to these Old Testament passages and says, even in the Old Testament, there were a few that were soft soil, that were responsive to the gospel. We called them out and we judged all the rest. And he points to these case studies in the Old Testament and says, I saved some and I judged the rest. Now imagine if you're in the synagogue that day. Jesus is standing up to teach as one who has authority, and he says, all right, you're not responsive. Your heart is hard. I'm moving on. I've always been about the business of saving some and judging the rest. 
saving some and judging the rest. And so as Jesus' disciples, as his apostles who are sent, they are to go. Some will respond, some will be soft soil, some will be hardened soil. And this is to be okay. But for these that are being sent, I want you to consider this morning how sentness is like dynamite to explode familiarity in your heart. Notice this group that he sends. They're a ragtag lot at best, right? We're really early in the gospel stories, and it is quite clear at this point that most of these dudes don't get it. They don't understand the full weight of what God is doing through Christ. Even in chapter 6, later on in verse 52, which we'll look at shortly, even when he gets into the boat, this is the scene when Jesus is kind of walking on the water beside them, and he gets in the boat. He's just done the feeding of the 5,000. He got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So he is sending a people who don't seem to get it, who's just a not even a full chapter later, he's going to point to and say, these types of people, their hearts were hardened. They don't fully understand. And he tells them to go and sends them out with this mission and tells them to move unencumbered, right? They're not to take much with them, depend on the traveling hospitality of those that they go to, to live a modest lifestyle as they go. But go nonetheless. And in their going their faith grows. This, friends, is a great lesson for us this morning. Is that our faith does not precede mission. Our faith grows in mission. Clearly, God saves us before we can do anything meaningful for him, before we can live on mission. But once God saves us, he is not looking out from heaven at us saying, you've got to meet, you've got to meet a baseline of spiritual maturity before I'll ever do anything important with you. There's not some spiritual IQ test the ability to slice and dice fine nuances of theology that we've got to have in place before we can be useful in God's mission. And in fact, I would suggest to you that it is the very act of being sent by God that is used by God to grow those areas of your life. This is as we consider the New Testament letters. Think about it. These are not letters written to give us holistic pictures of every theological nuance. They're all written as missionary documents. The gospel's expanding to a new place, and we got to figure out, what in the world do we do with Gentiles? This is weird. So we're going to have a council, and we're going to write some letters, and we're going to circulate some things, because the mission of God is advancing, and therefore we've got to figure out what to do in light of what God is doing. We're not figuring it out all ahead of time, and then going and doing the thing that we, we got God figured out. 
Now I can go live on mission. But rather, in our living on mission, God is growing us. He is expanding us. We have the temptation to simply sit and soak. Right? To simply sit and soak. I just need more. I need deeper teaching. I need somebody that can slice it thinner for me. I don't really understand the Bible. I don't have enough people and community around me. I would ask you to consider this more. You have all that you need in Christ Jesus to start. You have all that you need in Christ Jesus to start. And in your going, do you need deep teaching? Absolutely. Do you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters? Absolutely. But it's not a precursor to going. It's in your going. It's in your going. This is why I'm convinced that most of our churches in the Southeast get stagnant, because people stop going. They stop being sinning where they've believed a gospel that said, I was created to sit in a garden naked. I mean, how boring is that, right? Just walk around naked in the garden, and then at the end of time, God's going to add a few wings to me, and I'm going to sit on a cloud naked. That's going to be weird. I mean, that's even stranger, right? Boring and boringer. And in the middle, I just endure and hope that I understand more Love my church more deeply. Avoid the big pain of life. Friends, it is in our sentness, it is in our missional task in the garden to create, cultivate care for the good world that God has made. And far from sitting on a cloud with wings in heaven, we are going to rule and reign over the new heavens and the new earth, perfectly and forever without sin. And so now we have a task. You want your prayer life to grow? Try living on mission. You feel like your prayer life's gotten a little bit stagnant? Try loving some people that are really far from God and see if it doesn't start your prayer life. You feel like you don't hunger after God's word? Start loving somebody that believes vastly differently than you do and say, I want you to ask me some questions about my faith. See if that doesn't get your nose in the Bible. You feel like you're really stale in the religious traditions of the Southeast? Then move. Do what you do somewhere else for the glory of God. And let us help you get there. It is in the sentness that God explodes our familiarity. Here's the beauty of the rest of your life. You got prayers to pray, people to love, frustrations to endure, a church that will not be perfect, a host of non-believers that are going to do wacky things, Sin, suffering, pain, frustration, that's what awaits us. And it is in walking into those things with passionate intentionality that God transforms us into the image of Christ. And look how this text ends. This is stunning. Verse 12. They went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What a contrast. Jesus in his hometown heals a few sick people on the side. And here he sends out this ragtag group of people that don't seem to get it. And they are massively used by God to extend his mission. That is what you and I are invited to this morning. If you find your heart stale and callous this morning, let me invite you in the time that we have remaining to, to, to do nothing. 
to sit and to pray that God would, as we saw Tozer write, that God would soften your heart, he would melt your heart with the warmth of his love. Perhaps there's somebody sitting next to you that you just need to speak a word of confession to. Like, brother, I don't feel like singing this morning because my heart is cold. That you would use this time and this space to do that. Or perhaps you know of a friend sitting in this room this morning and you're concerned about them. You've watched their life for the last decade and at one point they were soft-hearted to the gospel and now they seem removed and distant. A word of prayer, of intentional prayer for your brothers and sisters in this space would be more than warranted. To stand and sing songs that would captivate your awe of God or this morning to beg God to send you to beg God to send you. Most of you don't need more sermons. You need to act on the sermons that you've heard. You don't need deeper teaching. You need to obey the teaching that you've heard. This morning, would God incite that in you as we seek to live as a church with hearts captivated by an awe of God. Let's pray. Father, I, I need this word today. Um, I need to be reminded of how hard my heart can get and how cold and calloused to you I can become. And we need to hear that consistently. So would you, in your grace, in this space, melt our cold hearts with the warmth of the radiant beauty of Christ. And would that passion send us to live a life on mission until you come back and we see you fully. We ask that for the sake of Christ.